Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Hello, everybody. Can you hear me? Give me a thumbs up. Oh, great. I'm so happy we can see each other. We're not connected for some reason on the chats. I can't see you on the chats, but I can see your faces. I can see you're with me, and I already feel better. There's a lot of energy, a lot of emotion going into this fellowship. Um, nothing seemed to be flowing smoothly. And seeing all of you is already making me very, very, very happy. Um, so shalom, shalom. It is good to see you. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you, uh, right now, it seems like there's some sort of ceasefire going on, but that's happened maybe a hundred times in the last few days. And uh, it's, it's totally not clear that that really is happening. And seeing the love and the, I think the concern, if I'm reading your faces correctly, <laughs> it makes us feel less alone. You know, like, like you're here with us, like you're under fire with us. And, uh, and, and I'll tell you when I say us, I'm not necessarily talking about us personally here on the farm, uh, because in Judea, ironically, out here on the Judean frontier, we're not really in the line of fire here. You know, it's funny because there are definitely those that consider us to be living in a more dangerous situation than others out here. But uh, in so many ways, we are safer than most of the country, than most of the world, I really think. Uh, when people come out here and they're like so nervous, they're like, I'm from, you know, Florida. I'm really nervous. I'm like, you know, statistically, Florida is more dangerous. Like, really? Like, I don't know. I made that statistic up, but it could be true. It probably is true. It's just you hear about everything that happens out here because it's an international incident. But things happen to people everywhere all the time. Um, you know, people express sometimes nervousness at the prospect of coming out to the farm. But there's not even one person that has expressed feeling nervous while actually being at the farm. And I can tell you that's been six years. People are always shocked. On the contrary, you know, they tell me how safe and secure and serene they feel out here in the place they're supposed to, according to international logic, feel the most endangered. Um, but on the missile front, though, I can't remember ever hearing a missile attack warning out here because we're on we're up in the mountains and it feels like, you know, we're just sort of out of range. Although I must say that Friday's barrage came closer than I can ever remember with missiles landing in Neve Daniel. Remember that village that Jeremy moved from in order to come to the farm? So there was a missile that landed right next to Neve Daniel. That is not a common occurrence. Their missiles are getting more technologically advanced with greater range. A missile landed in Bat Ain, which is a little bit further west from Neve Daniel, other places in Judea. And so here we are at the farm, you know, and, um, and Shane and I, we were here for Shabbat and the farm was bustling. I mean, we had an entire yeshiva of ultra-Orthodox uh, Jewish students from the old city. Um, you know, I, I shared with you last time this yeshiva. It was the same yeshiva that came back. So there's a new group of guys, but the same institution. And this is the yeshiva that makes a song out of the entire Torah. Most of them know the entire Torah by heart. Yes, by heart. We read the Torah together. They just could alternate. Anyone could read it without any preparation at all. Anyways, they came out here and their lives were changed by the experience over Shabbat. Um, you know, Shane and I, we hosted three seminary girls who were set to come out and stay with us for a long time now, for over a month now. We're always getting students asking out to come and stay with us. Um, 
And they were, you know, they were a little bit shaken coming out here. I had to speak to one of their parents even that called and asked, do we have a bomb shelter out here that they could run to? Well, are there alarms going off? They're nervous. They're nervous. I get it. I get it. Um, you know, there, and there were a number of families, entire families from the South that were directly in the line of fire uh, from Gaza who have like the zero seconds, like two or three seconds of warning between the siren going off and the explosion. Um, so a lot of them came up to the farm. A lot of these families came up to the farm and we lovingly, lovingly opened our doors to them as much as we could host. And, you know, including the Gimpels who opened their home for them to stay, you know, they stayed in the Gimpels home, which, um, which was really planned from above as they were able to host even more people being that Jeremy and Tehillah were away this past Shabbat in England, where they're at right now in the airport, uh, spreading the light. And so we were fortunate enough to be able to host Jeremy's children at the farm. And while they were initially excited to be, uh, you know, grownups and sleep at home while they, while Jeremy and Tila were away and they were just going to come to us for meals, ultimately they decided to sleep over at our house, even though it's just on the other side of the mountain, because it's scary. It's scary for these kids knowing that missiles could be landing and going off. And, and we were also honestly very happy to have them with us as well. Anyway, so the farm was brimming with life and visitors and, and really refuge, which I think is going to be a theme going into the future, that this will be a place of refuge on many levels. And while everybody here felt so fortunate to have a siren-free, missile-free Shabbat, we were all carrying the pain and bearing the prayers for the entire nation. As I'm sure Jeremy and Tehillah were doing during their mission in England. And so I'll take this opportunity, I suppose, to as good a time as any, hopefully it's gonna work. I wanna introduce Jeremy and Tehillah to share their hearts from this cloudy country known as England. Who's up first? I think uh, Jeremy, it's me, you're it's up me. first. I'm up, I'm up, I'm up. Tehillah has actually um, made a video because we are about to get on the plane. We're at Heathrow Airport right now. The whole airport is here behind me. and so. This was our opportunity to share. This is just the way life unfolded. And you can just see the spice carts all over. We were invited uh, with this delegation of rabbis from Israel months ago. And I, almost 50 rabbis were sent all across the United Kingdom for a weekend. We all gathered together for Sunday in the biggest synagogue in London. And there was an entire day of Torah study, of breakout sessions, of main events. Tehil and I were teaching throughout the weekend. And then as we were here, of course, missiles go off we leave all of our kids behind and we're like oh my goodness this is not the best time to leave israel but what can we do we were already committed and then we saw that families from the south needed refuge and we're like well that's just perfect our homes are open so we had people staying in our homes people staying in our guest house and we just felt like okay this is what we need to be doing now we need to be the ambassadors from the land of israel to connect to people um to connect them to what's happening and to sort of it's amazing to see the uh, true connection that the Jewish people around the world really feel with the people of Israel. I mean, there were prayers in the synagogues all across the United Kingdom. People were saying to Hillam and reading from the book of Psalms um, on behalf of the security and safety of Israel, hundreds and hundreds of rockets are being fired on the land of Israel and believers from around the world all unite in prayer. And I was thinking like, you know, it's almost like the hardest times bring out the best within believers. And that's just what it is. Like the Jewish people in the Talmud, they said that we are an analogy to olives. And like once you put olives under a lot of pressure, 
the best parts of the olives come out, the olive oil comes out. And in these challenging times, people could ask like, ah, why is Israel situated in such a difficult area, surrounded by dictatorships, surrounded by really the heart of global jihad, of you know people that if you're different than them, they'll cut your head off. If you seemingly don't fit in line with them, they'll kill you. And if you're not like them, the rockets will be just shot indiscriminately upon Israel. And Baruch Hashem for the brilliance that Hashem gave the Israeli um, engineers and Iron Dome and all of the different things, but many of those rockets just missed. And so many rockets were fired. And, you know, I don't know what else to say, but miracles upon miracles, it seems though Hashem is protecting us. And what I saw though, is that not only does it bring the best out of the Jews inside Israel, all of a sudden now, there were all these political debates in Israel, the judicial reform, the right-wing demonstrations, the left-wing demonstrations. All of a sudden, it was a reminder like, hey, wait a minute, we're all in this together. And all of the Jewish people inside the land of Israel became united again. And people from the south are now driving to the north, and my home is open to them. And all of a sudden, they're meeting me in my home. And it was like a giant reminder that we are one body. We are one movement. We represent one God, one Father in heaven, and all of us are his children. And those challenging times, they bring out the best within us inside Israel, and they bring the best within us outside of Israel. And then I was sent a video of this um, religious military unit that was on its way to Shechem, on its way to Nablus, inside the middle of this kind of operation. And, you know, I always take pride that the Arugot farm, most places you visit in Israel, you're visiting something that happened in the past. You're visiting an archaeological site. You're visiting a holy site. And in the Arugot farm, you're sort of seeing a window into the future. What would it look like if Mashiach were already here? Hashem gave us the vision in the prophets of Israel that we'd be connected to our land. We would be stewards of this land, custodians. The people would come from around the world and we would be bless them and teach them. And it would be like this marvelous reality of a window into the messianic era, a window into the future. And all of a sudden, I sent this video of this religious unit in the IDF of ultra-Orthodox Jews that have chosen to sort of break away from the mainstream ultra-Orthodox lifestyle and enter in to become combat soldiers in the IDF. And I don't know what to tell you. It was a window into the future of what King David's army would look like. And they gather together and they are saying a prayer, but it's a prayer in military style. And it's such a holy prayer in such a movement that I wanted to share it with this fellowship that you would be able to see the goodness that is coming out of the challenges of Israel. You know, if life is all good and we're just sitting on the beach sipping our martinis, I don't know, maybe we get fat and we get lazy and we're constantly on our toes here and it's forcing us to be stronger, forcing us to strengthen our faith, forcing us to strengthen our bodies, forcing us to be the best people that we can be to fight the darkness that surrounds us. And so I just want to share this video with you as I literally am walking onto the plane now. So you can also see a window into the future or maybe a window into the past. What did David's army look like? And I think that it's just King David's army resurrected in the land of Israel in 2023. So check this video out. I put the subtitles on it so you would understand the prayer in English. And um, to me, I, there was nothing more inspiring that I saw in this video the entire time I was away. So I hope you enjoy it and I will see you guys again soon. Shalom from London.
and soon to be back in the land of Israel. Shalom, my friends. Enjoy this video. different sounding than uh, you hear in synagogues in Brooklyn. That's for sure. No offense, Brooklyn, but you cannot compare the two things. Jeremy, are you, do you have anything left to say? Or are you just... What else is there to say after that? You're getting a window into what King David's army looked like and what it will look like. I don't know. In my mind, that was the most inspiring, exciting thing I have ever seen in my entire life. Soldiers that go out to battle like that are not going to lose. That's right. That's right. You know, I remember I told you when we went out to some of the clashes and the battles that we were in. And, you know, we would have sometimes a secular, a like platoon commander that'd be like, may we go out in peace and come back in peace and look after each other and come. And it's like, it was just so bland and vanilla. That's definitely not what the Hamas leaders are talking about. This is the type of spirit we need to be going into battle with. And that's the spirit that I see out here in Judea. That's the spirit that I see growing throughout the land of Israel. Um, wow, that's so exciting. Jeremy, thank you for sharing that. And I'm so happy. Looks like we just lost reception. It doesn't matter because you're done. But when you called me earlier from the airport, we couldn't even talk. So I'm grateful to Hashem that he made it where we were able to hear you right now. And now hopefully we'll be able to get to Gila also. What a dream that would be, Gila. Hi guys, I'm here in Heathrow Airport in London, getting ready to come back to Israel and wanted to just share a small idea. Now this week, we finished the book of Vayikra, the book of Leviticus. And at the end of the book, there's this warning that keeps repeating itself again and again. And it says, If you walk with me in what the Torah calls carry, then it's not going to be good for you. And the question is, what does that mean? You know, the, the kind of the art scroll accepted translation is um, uh, to walk with me casually. To walk with me casually. Um, what does it mean to walk with Hashem casually? Does that mean that we put our feet on the table, you know, when we're talking to Hashem? Does that mean that we go to that we go to shul, we go to our synagogue, uh, you know, not wearing our finest suit and tie? What does it mean to be casual with Hashem? And so, you know, when you don't know exactly what a word means, uh, we go back to the first place it appears to try to understand it better. So the word carry comes from the word mikre, which in modern Hebrew is always used to mean a coincidence. And if you go back to the first time that this word appears in the Bible, it actually is used in the context of a coincidence. But look how it's used. When Eliezer, the servant of Avraham, goes to try to find a wife for uh, Avraham's son Yitzchak, he comes to Haran and he says to Hashem, please make for me a mikre. Please make for me a coincidence. And what is the coincidence he asks for? He asks that exactly at the moment where he comes out, may there be a girl who comes out who offers to give water to him and to his camel. Meaning, he's saying, please make a situation where I'm in the right place at the right time and she's in the right place at the right time and everything just 
miraculously gives me these confirmations. So now, the Bible could have, you know, the Torah could have addressed this in a different way. It could have just said, well, you know, a mikra happened, a coincidence happened, and Eliezer happened to be walking along, and then he saw this girl who was so kind, and then from that coincidence he realized this would be a great match for Yitzchak. But that's not how he addresses it. He uses the word mikra in the context, the word coincidence in the context, the very first time it appears in the Torah. Uh, he, he uses it in the context of recognizing that it's actually not a coincidence. He's saying, please allow this coincidence to happen, Hashem. And by asking Hashem to make the coincidence, what is he actually recognizing inherently in that statement? He's recognizing that coincidences are not coincidences, but they in fact come from Hashem. We see the word much, much later used in the book of Ruth, which you're going to soon be reading on the holiday of Shavuot where Ruth goes out to pick, uh, you know, to, to pick up barley uh, in the fields, and it says that she had a coincidence, a mikre, that of all the fields that she wandered into, she happened to wander into Boaz's field. But we obviously know, is that a coincidence? Meaning, it's using the word almost ironically to show us that there is no coincidence. And so Hashem says, don't walk with me coincidentally. What does it mean to walk with me coincidentally? Rabbeinu Bechaye says that it's human nature that, you know, when good things happen, we say, oh, good work me, I did that really well. Like if we, you know, we make a good business deal or our kids are, you know, turning out really righteous, well, oh, I'm a good businessman or I was a great mom. I really, I nailed that one. I did great on that. But when bad things happen, we say, oh man, bad luck. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. That was really, that was just bad fortune and to not take responsibility. And Rabbeinu B'chayi says that Hashem is guiding us here in this commandment that when the good things happen and when the bad things happen, none of them are actually a mikre, none of them are a coincidence. So Hashem is warning us, do not walk with me coincidentally. And Hashem is you know, so precise in the outcome that will come. He doesn't say, if you walk with me and carry you know, uh, I'm gonna uh, you know, punish you and you'll, uh, you know, you'll have, you know, bad, uh, you know, bad kids, or you'll have bad agriculture. Look how carefully Hashem chooses the, the, the outcome. I'm being careful to say outcome and not punishment. The outcome of walking with Hashem coincidentally, of seeing the things that happen around you as being coincidence and not being from Hashem, the outcome He just says is, I will also walk coincidentally with you. But the thing is, is that all of those good things that you think were happening because of yourself and all of those, you know, and just those, you know, few bad things that were happening as a coincidence, wait till you see what happens if you actually lived a life of complete random coincidence. If I left you up to coincidence, it will not be pretty. And so if you live life as if things that happen to you are accidental, random, meaningless, coincidental, Hashem is not saying, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, smack you, you're gonna get, you know, this or that punishment you will get simply the outcome of that belief system. If your belief system is that everything means nothing, so everything will simply mean nothing. Hashem walks with us in the way that we walk with Him. And so if we live a life where we believe that everything has meaning, Hashem will have that providence over us. When you walk around feeling like everything is random, then maybe it just actually will be. And so what is the antidote? What is the opposite? It's amazing that this is the bookend. This is the way that the book of Vayikra ends because if we end with the warning to not walk with Hashem in Keri, in Mikre, Mikre, what does that word sound like to you? Not to walk in coincidence. How interesting that that is the end of the book of Vayikra.
Do you hear the sort of same sound? The words sound almost exactly the same. Vayikra, mikre, right? They're the same, um, they're the same sounding, almost exactly the same sounding word. What does Vayikra mean? This is the book of Vayikra. The book of Vayikra starts out, the book of Leviticus starts out with the word Vayikra, which means that Hashem called out. Hashem called out to Moshe. And then the whole book of Vayikra up until now is how to be connected to Hashem through the laws of purity and impurity, where we're able to, you know, uh, come close to Hashem through the temple. When we have the sacrificial work, we have all of the laws of how to eat in a holy way, how to behave in a holy way, the times that are holy times. All of the book of Vayikra is Hashem calling out to us, asking to be in our relationship. And He gives us throughout this book so many ways to be in relationship. And what is the opposite of being in a relationship? It's to live coincidentally, because then you don't have a relationship. Because if everything is happening randomly, if everything means nothing, then you don't have a relationship with Hashem. There's no dialogue. There's no conversation. It's just, I'm walking around the world, bumping into things, and everything means nothing. So the antidote is the book of Vayikra, and it's warning you. It's saying, pay attention. Pay attention, because you have two ways that you can live. You can live as if Hashem is calling to you, or you can live as if He isn't. And if you live as if He isn't, maybe He really won't be. But if you live as if he is, then we'll be able to take the holiness that we're given throughout the book of Vayikra and create a living, vivacious, and vibrant relationship with Hashem. So with that, I wish everybody a good week. Bye, guys. That was so beautiful, Tila. Um, you, you know, it, it actually makes me think of a, a Torah teaching I just learned because we're, we're, you're talking about coincidence. Either everything is a coincidence or not a coincidence. And... Uh, including what's happening here in Israel. You know, it, we could say, oh, they're just shooting missiles again. But in the land of Israel, everything is meticulously orchestrated and planned out. So here's the idea that when someone talks to you, how do you know if you're, they're telling you the truth or not? You can see it in their eyes. The only way of knowing if someone is telling you the truth or not is not from their nose or their ears, as this teaching goes, but from their eyes. In Eretz Yisrael, the Torah says, Hashem God is looking at Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, all the time. While in exile, even if God reveals to me that he loves me infinitely, I can't see Hashem's eyes because Hashem is covering his face in the exile. So even if he tells me, it's hard to believe him. But in Eretz Yisrael, God's eyes are open all the time, on us all the time so we can truly believe it and know it all the time. And that's what Tehillah was saying. There's something that's so beautiful. Of course, understand that metaphorically, not to take every word of that literally, but when we're living in the land of Israel, it becomes so clear that everything is from Hashem for our growth and for our benefit, that it's hard to unsee it once you really start seeing it and experiencing it, which explains the level of faith here. Despite the fact that we're under fire, because like I said, the nation, is under fire and it really doesn't matter whether it's happening to any of us here personally this time you know when when we need to run to a bomb shelter this time is it happening to us or is it happening to the guy over there to the person in the south the nation is under fire and so we're all under fire and if we think that we can turn the other way and close our eyes and put our heads in the sand it will come for all of us eventually we're one nation and we're one family and we're all in one boat and if there's a hole anywhere in the hull of that boat, 
doesn't matter how distant or disconnected we may feel from the person on the other side of the boat, the entire boat is going to sink. And so, yes, the nation, the nation is under fire, this time by the Islamic Jihad, uh, which many people don't know is actually formed directly by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard in 1988. But that's just a fact that I always feel sort of, I guess, annoyed that we even play this game and make these distinctions between Hamas and their supposed junior partner of the Islamic Jihad or Hezbollah or even the Palestinian Authority, you know, the PA, which people claim is the moderate party out there. But we all know, obviously, that they've murdered more Jews than Hamas has. And they continue to pay, pay terrorists and their families to murder Jews, of course, funded by the U.S. But that's neither here nor there. Well, it sort of is here and there. But either way, they're all the same, okay, as far as I'm concerned. They're all vassal puppets controlled by Iran, and they all have the same jihadist, Nazi-like impulses to wipe out every Jew and subjugate every infidel in the world. And, you know, I always feel conflicted when I go this route that just happens naturally sometimes. Oh, that we should be more inspiring, more positive, more uplifting. But we also just need to be honest and true. And sometimes this is where I'm at, you know, and this is a little bit where I'm at right now. You know, there's just a certain... A certain anger here because you know this time it's the Islamic Jihad and they've already shot off nearly 900 missiles 900 missiles mortars and rockets in just a few days forcing millions of Israelis nearly half the population more than half the population by now to flee into bomb shelters you know this is, here's a video I put together with Tabitha there's much better footage I'm sure many of you have seen it but it's just a small taste of what those barrages look like You, know, you don't need to be here to 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 see what that is to see imagine in the distance people that's people from throughout the country are seeing those little popping explosions in the sky knowing that each one of those hundreds of missiles are meant for them for the death and the murder of their children of their babies of their families you know, here's a, a commercial propaganda video that was put out by the Islamic Jihad. I wanted to share this with you. Okay, so I wasn't able to get the, uh, the English subtitles there for the Arabic, but you, you don't need to, you can tell very clearly. They're boasting about how uh, 
you know, they're boasting about how they've sent Israel running for the mountains. The Zionist entity is running in fear like cowards, quivering in bomb shelters, emptying out the streets. That's what they're boasting about. They're showing the videos. And you know what? They aren't wrong. On some level, they aren't wrong. They're wrong about Israel. It's not the nation of Israel. It's the government of Israel. But it's still, it is what it is. We have to face the facts. It is what it is. Here's a, you know, here's a video of a, of a beachfront in Tel Aviv from just a few days ago. beach just empty out as people are just fleeing for their lives, fleeing for their lives uh, in, in absolute horrific, abject terror. You know, in the, the, uh, that terror commercial, that video they put at the end, you know, that was a direct hit of the residential apartment building in Rishon LeZion, which killed one person, a woman named Ingra Abramia. Um, here's a picture of Ingra. She uh, immigrated to Israel from Armenia. 30 years ago, you know, you hear on the news, one died, but you don't see the picture. You don't hear the story. They're not a person, they're a number. She immigrated to Israel from Armenia 30 years ago, and, uh, and she was murdered in her apartment, sitting in her apartment by a missile. Uh, seven were injured in that attack, including her disabled wheelchair-bound husband, not to mention the lifetimes of PTSD and other traumas that the children and other civilians present in the building are going to have to endure. This is a uh, Tabitha, do we have the video of what that direct hit looked like? Inside the apartment, seeing the irreparable damage and the blood and the horror, it was just, you know, yeah, there in that building, they, the woman was killed and there were those that were injured, injured and they're traumatized, but, but, uh, it, it's, it doesn't, that's just a, a scratch on the surface of the trauma that Israel is suffering from all of this. Again, you know, I urge each of you, by the way, to download this app called Seva Adom, or, uh, you know, in English, it's called Red Alert. Type in Red Alert in the Google App Store or the App Store on Apple or whatever. Um, have any of you heard of this app? Raise your hand if you have it on your phone already. Just interested. That does not shock me at all that everybody that I see here, almost everybody has it on the phone. Anyway, it goes off every time the sirens go off in Israel. Thousands of lovers of Israel around the world have this app. I'm sure there are people that have the app that hate Israel that just want to celebrate every time it goes off. But, uh, but so many people like you, when it goes off, what do you do? Write in the comments, you, you pray. Right then, at that moment, day and night. I remember I actually had to mute mine because it was so constant that we just weren't able to sleep. We weren't able to function. And... Um, and so we pray, you know, we pray when those alarms go off, which I believe, which I really believe with all my heart, it, that those prayers, they help more than anyone in this physical realm of existence can possibly know. And every time those sirens go off, it's another world of fear and horror for innocent civilians, you know, men and women and children. And by the way, sometimes people don't like bringing up the men. I have too many friends that suffer horrifically from PTSD, from what happened to them in wars and terrorist attacks. And it, it is crippling and it's horrifying. And sometimes I even think when I, when I look at some of my friends, I know it, it's bad to say this, but they tell me themselves that they would have preferred to simply die. And the, the, the damage that this PTSD does to their family, it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking. 
it's heartbreaking. I, I want to share another video with you. And this is a video of school children at a bus stop in Beit Shemesh, which is just, you know, right down the road from here, less than 20 minutes away from here. You know, I was going to actually, it's, it's a longer video and I was going to cut it short um, just to give you a little taste, but I felt like, I felt like you wouldn't want that, that you would want to suffer a little bit with it and endure with it and see the entire unfolding of, of how long and what this happens to. I thought you'd want to see the entire heartbreaking horror that the people of Israel, the women of Israel, the children of Israel are enduring. <laughs> to that bus stop would provide any impediment to an oncoming missile. These kids are just terrified, terrified. It's, you know, it, it's hard for me to imagine any of those children sleeping well for a very long time now. You know, anyone there would be affected by this. I remember when I was in close proximity of a bombing on Ben Yehuda Street when I was 17 for years, I, I fell to the ground every time there was a sound of anything that resembled a boom of any sort. I still have no doubt that I carry trauma from them, but it's hard sometimes by this point in my life, what I've been through to separate one trauma from another. It's all just sort of mixed in. But, um, but you know, we're, we're so fortunate here to have our beloved Tabitha with us, uh, safe and healthy, as she was right there with her kids in the car. And uh, Tabitha, we're so grateful to you that you stepped out of your comfort zone and shared your story with us. You just uh, sent in uh, this... Hey everyone, a little bit out of my comfort zone here, but those sirens there in Beit Shemesh, my daughter and I know up close and personal. Um, on Friday, my daughter and I are driving and all of a sudden we hear this boom and car shakes. I'm like, okay, this word. Now I'm, I'm a nervous driver. So I was like, okay, what's going on? And then it happens again. We're like, okay, siren, no, we didn't hear anything. And then my daughter looks up in the sky because we're still hearing it and the car's still shaking and I'm freaking out. And she looks up, she goes, mom, those missiles. And I'm like, yeah, that's our iron dome. <laughs> 
freaked out. And uh, anyway, so we're driving it now to get you the idea. We have no place to go. There is no shoulder on the side of the road. And to the left, we have forest. And to the right, it's just fields. And no shoulder. There's literally no place to go. So I'm just kind of driving and praying. And then we get to Beit Shemesh. We see the boom stops and the cars stop shaking. And we see people on the side of the road hunched over, crouched behind their cars. And then the phone calls from my husband and, and family start coming. You guys okay? You guys okay? We're like, yeah, freaked out, but we're fine. And uh, let's just say that there was no music played in that car ride for the rest of the way. Bye, guys. Thank God you're okay, Tabitha. And uh, just so you know, Tabitha is not a, uh, you know, she's, she's a strong woman. She's got nerves of steel. Like this, if shakes Tabitha, this, this would shake anyone. She's in the car with her children. You know, and, and thank God she's okay. And, and here's actually the testimony of Tabitha's sweet, wonderful, beautiful IDF soldier daughter, um, Adia, uh, Adia Miriam, who shares her story, which we're really- Hi, good. I'm Adia, I'm Tabitha's daughter. I apologize if I'm not very concentrated, but I'm kind of on my way to base right now. Um, uh, when I was on my way back from base home last week, we had a couple sirens. Um, some of them were while I was on the train, some of them were while we were at the train station. And I remember that the first one was when I was at the train station. Um, and no one really knew where they were supposed to go. So there's a little bit of a panic um, because we weren't sure where we're supposed to go, where's the safe place, where is it? Um, but eventually we all did get to the safe place. No one got hurt, thankfully for that. Um, there was a couple little kids, so I could see that they were a little bit scared about it, but everybody were good, which is very thankful to God for that. Um, also, while we were on the train, sadly, there were a lot more sirens, and so our train had to slow down for a while. But we all made it. No one got hurt around us. We didn't hear or see any missiles, thank God. Um, but I hope that all is well for everybody and that whoever has to go through a siren like that as well has the same... Uh, journey that I did and that everybody end up safe and healthy. That's uh, it, what would what would she be talking about and doing if she were in uh, New York or Chicago or Florida or Texas right now? What's happening in her sorority and university? And now she's wearing an, a uniform in the first Jewish army since the times of King David, possibly needing to defend the entire people of Israel and sacrifice her life for that. That's what she's going through here. That's what we're going through here in Israel. You know, and, and each round of these attacks in Israel that we endure, I have to say the more potent and amplified my emotions become. And, uh, and of course, there's a mix of emotions that happen. But my primary emotions, uh, and I don't think it's just me, I think there are millions of others like me that are feeling more and more and more like this, more rage, more indignation, and, and even more so than, than that, embarrassment. I know that may sound crazy, but it's embarrassing. Embarrassment, not, not on a personal level, of course, but embarrassment for the nation of Israel. And by extension, embarrassment for Hashem's name and the great desecration of Hashem's name that this is causing. You know, and, and these feelings feel right. You know, they feel healthy. I guess healthy responses to a very unhealthy situation, at least healthier than than fear and hopelessness. I, th I think that's for sure. I really think that this is the, um, that we should feel embarrassed about all of this. Embarrassed that we're being brought to our knees by these 
evil Nazi-like terrorists. And I say Nazi-like because their official, formal, codified mission statement is the destruction and death of every single Jew. And it's not just like, oh, well, that's just what was codified a long time ago that they don't really... No, they believe this. They're not just saying this. This is a commitment to them. This is a way of life for them. They mean it. We see how much they mean it in their fireworks, candy distributing celebrations after the murder of every single Jew. No one is too young and innocent, including as as we've unfortunately seen, babies in their cribs. The whole situation summons up in my mind the story of, uh, of the Israelites and the Philistines, David and Goliath. I've shared this with you so many times, but it just, it comes up for me again and again and again. Uh, I'm not trying to think about it. It just comes up. That, and, and this, but this situation we're in is much more embarrassing than what the Israelites were facing then with the Philistines, because, you know, it doesn't seem like these terrorist organizations are like Goliath in comparison to the Israeli army. That's for sure. That's true and obvious to us. It's obvious to us, but in the mind of so many in Tel Aviv, in the mind of most of the Israeli government who feels that they have to carefully, pragmatically weigh the grave consequences in the eyes of the world that the world would do if we, you know, the consequences and the minds and the thoughts of the entire world that's against us, the whole world, it's like these terrorist organizations backed by the world, they are Goliath. And because these jihadist terrorist organizations, they are not standing alone. They're right about that. They aren't standing alone. Uh, the, the world has their back. That's clear. They are being supported and, and funded and financed by the EU and the UN and the media and the Biden administration and so much of the rest of the world. And, and so, you know, so they're... We're talking about Goliath here, right? Mocking the armies of Israel, challenging the bravest among them to a duel. And everyone was consumed with fear. Chapter 17, verse 24 of Samuel 1, it says that when the men of Israel saw Goliath, they fled in terror, right? And the Philistine, he said, I hereby defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let's fight it out. And when the men of Israel saw they fled in terror just a few verses later. But David didn't see it that way. He had different eyes altogether. He loved God with such an overriding fierceness that he just couldn't tolerate such a mockery. God's honor so completely consumed him that he explained, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he dares to defy the armies of the living God of Israel? To David, it was not, it was not the, the armies of Israel. It was the armies of the God of Israel. We've discussed this before. So great was David's love for God, so all-encompassing was his heart for Hashem, that he had no emotional capacity left over to even think or consider about his own safety and welfare. David understood that Goliath wasn't mocking the army of Israel. No. Goliath was mocking the God of Israel, and such a desecration couldn't be tolerated even for a moment. And so I was thinking about this over Shabbat, thinking about this. Without Goliath, would David have really been able to fully express and manifest himself as the David that we know, you know, as the David that we revere and love so much? That Goliath story for me is a big part of what builds up David's esteem 
in my mind, I don't know about any of you, I don't think David would have been that David. Without Goliath, he would have always been David in, I guess, a theoretical potential sense, perhaps. But it took Goliath's challenge to allow David to fully manifest himself in the world. To really to, the, to bring out his potential. And so perhaps that was the reason for Goliath's creation. That is the reason Goliath needed to exist in the first place. Because remember, my friends, we've learned this before in the fellowship. It's an axiomatic truth that everything and everyone in the world has a purpose and a mission. And, uh, and bringing out David's greatness, well, I believe that was Goliath's. And if that's true, then I must say that I think that these jihadist terrorist organizations and those that support them, they're accomplishing their mission. It feels like these, these same type of attacks happen to us every year, or at least every other year, all in order to gauge the Jews of Israel and see if we are evolving and growing and advancing and developing, you know, closer and closer to David's courageous love for Hashem, banishing the fear from our hearts and replacing it with zeal and love for Hashem. Not, I'm not even just talking about on a personal level, but on a national level which is made up of all of the persons in the nation. You know, these, these terrorist organizations, they exist. I really believe that they're existing here to bring us even closer to being willing to defy the nations of the world and lash out with righteous fury and end these murderous genocidal attacks once and for all. And finally show our enemies and show the world the Jewish blood is not cheap. And that if they so much as harm the hair on one Jewish head, they will spend the next 20 years figuring out what just happened to them. I'm hearing myself now. I know that this must sound militant and crazy. I'm just sharing my heart right now. And I, I, I can't help but to feel like this is, this is a part of the way we should be feeling. We're a people that love and love peace. That doesn't need to be proven, but we need to be willing to do this. You know, everyone is always saying that we need you know, to go into the Palestinian Authority and take out all the terror, incitement, and Holocaust denial from their history books and from their, the, the books in their classrooms that the kids are all studying and learning and being brainwashed by, that we should go and, you know, westernize them, that we should moderate them. But what if that is not what this is really about? What if the goal isn't about changing them at all? What if the goal isn't about changing their history books, but more about bringing forth our own, reading our own great history books, our own Bible, our own Torah, the story of King David and Goliath. Every single student should know it by heart. It should be a part of them. The stories of the Maccabees, every student should know that is who they are. What if the goal isn't about changing the other, about changing the jihadists? What if the goal is about changing us and changing ourselves? Because first of all, on the most practical human level, Trying to change other people is just a waste of time. Show me one time in human history that such a thing has worked long-term without oppressive coercion. We have you know, limited energy in this life, and the only chance we have at changing anyone in this world is changing ourselves. And that in itself is a gargantuan task that we need divine assistance for. And we can only have success if we channel all of our energy and focus into that, into changing ourselves, if we're still dividing our energy up between changing ourselves and changing others as well, 
we are destined to fail. We don't even have a chance. And by the way, I think that this is actually the central idea that's being conveyed in this week's Torah portion. Because the portion starts off with the words, Im it's Bahar Bechukotai. So this is the second part of the Torah portion. It's a dual portion. Im Bechukotai which means on the simplest translation, if you will follow my decrees and my commandments and perform them, right, then these things will happen. Now, if Shlomo Karlbach points out that the simplest reading of this, which he seems to imply, I think if I understood him correctly, is a misreading altogether, basically makes Hashem sound like a strict school teacher. Do everything that I tell you to do, and you'll get good marks, and you won't get in trouble. But Rav Shlomo says that a truer meaning comes from a, a deeper understanding of the Hebrew language. He points out that the word bechukotai comes from the word chakika, which is true. It means engraved. He teaches that you could approach God, God's laws as externalized, outside, superficial, imposed on us from an outside sort of authoritarian place that we, you know, from a, like a place of fear. We keep it from a place of fear or, or you could engrave God's will into your very own neshama, into your very own soul. Etch it deeply and irrevocably within your soul. Into the depths of your consciousness, you could you know, engrave the words of Hashem like the Ten Commandments were engraved upon the tablets all the way through. So you can either follow the, the laws or engrave them in our hearts. And the word im, right, im bechukotai, usually defined as if. You know, if you keep the commandments, if you keep these laws, but im is usually defined as if. Well, the Midrash teaches here that the word im is used in this term as it's used in many other places with the lashon of tanfumim, meaning the, a language of pleading, of, of begging, or of beseeching. That, that, that is what the words im bechukotai tishmeru mean, according to Rav Shlomo. Rav Shlomo is telling us, Hashem is saying, if one, if one could say you know, that Hashem is pleading with us, Hashem is saying, please, please don't keep these laws from a place of superficiality or fear. No, please engrave them into your soul. Edge them so deeply into your essence that we will always be connected in the deepest way. Hashem wants a connection with us, a heart connection with us. And, you know, so whether you see the beauty as I do in, in Rav Shlomo's words, it's hard to debate the underlying message. We all agree that Hashem doesn't want us acting from a place of empty wrote actions, that is a type of hypocrisy that he hates. He wants our hearts. And while giving our hearts to Hashem is the greatest joy imaginable, and arguably the purpose of our existence in this world, it's also the greatest and most challenging mission, because it means real growth, real evolution, real change to ourselves. That is hard work. That is life's mission. People come out to the farm, I've told you, they're like, oh, you're building all these buildings, you're building a retreat center, you're building a house of prayer. No, no, no. The real thing that I'm trying to do is work on my heart right in here to change my heart to grow closer to Hashem. And that means working on certain attributes that are, that are a barrier, that are an impediment between us and Hashem. So, so, so when I try to understand what Hashem is communicating with us through our enemies, you know, when a man beats a dog like with a stick, we've talked about this before, what does the dog do? He bites at the stick. You know, the stick that Hashem is using to, to hit us with here 
There's a meaning, there's a reason that he chose this stick. And so when I try to understand how Hashem wants us to change, why he chose for these things to be happening to us in the way that they are, there are, I guess, two main things that stand out, stand out to me in the clearest and most prominent way. The first is regarding our midot, our attributes. And I feel grateful to Jeremy that he spent so many of our sessions together conveying the concepts of the various you know, manifestations of Hashem's attributes in the world. You remember all those things, the, the whole spherot chart that Jeremy went into? I'm sure Tabitha could send you a link if you want to review about that. I'm not going to go into that. We don't have the time right now. I'm sure she'll send you a link. But either way, we're here in the world to fix ourselves. Attributes are supposed to be balanced out. It's not as easy as saying you should be compassionate. That's it, you should be compassionate. Yes, but there's other situations and other scenarios that demand other things, which is why it's really impossible to judge anyone at all because a certain action from one person may be a great win for them, but the same thing from someone else, the same action in the eyes of Hashem may be a sin. Um, just a generic, non-specific example. Someone who has a natural predisposition for gvura. What is gvura? It's like discipline, harshness, the sort of enforcement of boundaries, it's boundaries. So for them to show compassion and mercy in a specific situation may be a great achievement of growth and character development for them, but the exact same action from someone with a natural disposition to be an appeaser or a people person, I think like me, well, for them to take that same action would be the path of least resistance and it would not be considered an achievement at all. You know, I think in Hashem's eyes, it would be uh, considered a failure for them to rise to the occasion and to grow in the way that Hashem wants them to. Whereas the other person with the predisposition for Gavura, well, then it would be a big win. Anyways, for those people that really know Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, it's no secret that we have a national predisposition for compassion and kindness and mercy. I'm not trying to toot our horn here. I'm just trying to be honest. And, you know, the, the sages say we're Rachmanim, B'nai Rachmanim. We're merciful, the children of the merciful, as the sages describe us. And if you meet a Jew that's really, really not merciful, you should check their Jewish lineage. So, you know, I mean, what, what other people ha have has never missed an opportunity. Think of any nation that comes to mind. Who has invested so much of their time and resources, and even risk their own lives to help people and nations that we're talking about this idea that when you tolerate evil, you, it's not compassion, it's not a good thing, it brings darkness to the world, and you'll end up causing evil to the compassionate. And, uh, and on, on the other hand, we're bringing, you know, darkness and death and evil by doing exactly that. And so while it is our deepest prayer and our greatest hope, for the nations of the world to repent and to return to Hashem and to extend their hands to us as friends and brothers or take our hand that is always extended to them as friends and brothers. And we can live with them in peace and harmony and love each other. That is our prayer. But the sages do say that until that day, we must be ready and willing to fight with ferocity and strength and conviction in the justice of our cause. We need to be willing to defeat our enemies with such resounding force that there should be no room for confusion as to who really won the war or not, because that's a confusion that Israel leaves after every war that we've won, because our enemies think that if they had won the war, they would wipe us out. 
And I'm not saying that's what we should do, but they always think right after we've won a war that we just surrendered because we just walk away. We don't actually follow through and do what needs to be done to prevent the next attack a week later. So on, on the deepest level, I feel like this correction from above is guiding us to do that, which I think nearly every correction is guiding us to do, that which co connects all the other corrections and all the foundational levels of everything, and that is the destruction of, of the idols in our hearts. We talk about this so often in the fellowship because it's such a fundamental theme of the human existence. We all have idols in our heart. And we, our, our mission here is to take our faith and for, away from wherever we've misplaced it, whether it's man or money or in ourselves or anywhere else, and put it in the one place where our faith and trust belong. And that's in Hashem himself. And the reason I say that idolatry is at the root of all the other soul corrections, because if you dig down deep enough in any spiritual, emotional, or personality fault or blemish, you see that only by virtue of the fact that you believe on some level that there's a power other than Hashem or independent of Hashem, that that fault or blemish can continue to exist. Otherwise, the holistic purity of our faith would prevent such a false belief from coming alive in the first place. The, the example I've often used before is anger. You know, anger is a perfect one because we can only become angry if we believe that we know that which is happening in the world should not be happening. That which is happening to us should not be happening. We know what should be in the world, and we know that what's happening now is not what should be, because we know. And that's not what should be happening. And right now, in the way that we're responding to these horrific attacks, it definitely feels from the inside here that the government of Israel is fearing man more than fearing Hashem. Does it seem like that to all of you over there? Is that how you understand this? I'd really... I'm really eager to, I would like to know what, what that means. And the reason I believe that, 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 that that's really the root is because when you ask most people why we're tolerating this evil and not responding like we should, most people here in Israel, they say something about the fact like, we, we, just, we just can't, we can't do it. That it's not realistic that, you know, our hands are tied behind our backs because America would never let us do it. The world would never let us do it. That's what we hear again and again and again. And I think that, you know, by this point, most people here in Israel realize that it would not be immoral to respond in a stronger and harsher and more deterrent way, like any normal nation would. But so many feel that that which is preventing the government from succeeding uh, at, at fulfilling its primary mandate, that thing that justifies its existence more than anything else, which is what? Which is to protect its citizens. Most people feel that the reason the government is falling so short is because they're so consumed with what the world would think. And that, my friends, is one of the great national idols of Israel that needs to be sh shattered as we're approaching the end of days and redemption right now. It's one of those final idols that we have yet to really shatter. We need to, we, yes, we need to act with the highest level of morality, but Hashem's morality, not the twisted, hypocritical morality of the world, whatever that even means. Because you see, idolatry isn't only when you believe in a power instead of Hashem, but also if you believe in an independent force in addition to Hashem. Also, also that could exist. The best biblical example that would come to mind would be the times of Elijah, where the nation of Israel believed in both the idol of Baal as well as the God of Israel. And what did Elijah called out to them? He asked, 
How long will you continue to hold by two beliefs? For how long will you continue to dance at both weddings? For how long do you think that you can be on both sides of the fence? Ultimately, we can either put our faith in God or put our faith in man. I mean, how many times should we have learned this lesson already? We should have learned this lesson from the story of Gaza itself. It's like we are being beaten by the, the very beating rod that we carved from the branch. You know, before 2005, the Jewish people had created a miraculous, thriving center of flourishing life from the empty sand dunes that were Gaza. And then the international pressure poured in. I'm not going to go into all the history, but it, it just poured in on Israel to cave to the horrific terrorism and surrender uh, to surrender Gaza to Hamas. And I knew that this was an outright lie. Most of the country knew it was an outright lie. And many of us fought against it with all we had. You know, here's the, uh, the end of a video in which my fellow IDF soldiers were forcibly carrying me out of Gaza. אדוני, אני מבקש ממך בוא איתנו ברגל, פעם אחרונה. You think that was like easy for me to be there for weeks in the blistering heat and then to have my own fellow soldiers carry me out of Gaza, but I knew it was the right thing to do, that we couldn't get up and voluntarily just walk away and give the land of Israel to these terrorists. I mean, if you even knew the backstory about how they had to bribe one government minister with a vehicle, and in exchange for that, he voted for the disengagement. I mean, the whole thing is so unbelievably infuriating and corrupt. But, you know, Caroline Glick reminds us this week, you know, we, we were told that after this disengagement from Gaza, that Israel will be more secure, more secure as the result, because, you know, its defensive lines would be more defensible, whatever that means. That was a thing that was said. We'd be more defensible. We were told that Gaza would turn into a thriving country like Singapore, as the Arabs would embrace their independence and just financially thrive using the state of the art technology and greenhouses that Israel left behind, that Israel used to turn the desert green. And, uh, you know, we were told that for sure, oh, for sure, for sure the international community, after seeing the great lengths that went, that we went to for peace, would definitely side with Israel if the Arabs dared attack us after the withdrawal. We were made all of these promises and people believed them. And then the obvious happened. It was all lies. We were ripped, literally ethnically cleansed from Gaza. Not one Jew could remain behind. Even though in Israel, we have 1.5, more than 1.5 million Arab Israeli citizens. But if there's a land that is an Arab land, no, not one Jew could be in it. A hypocritical, you know, hypocrisy that I don't hear anyone in the world addressing. But anyways, it was lies and not, it was not long before the missiles started again and their range had far improved and they were deeper in and they could do more carnage and more death and more trauma and more desecration of Hashem's name and more of the world pointing at Israel as the aggressor. You, you can't make this stuff up. But the same empty promises are continuing. The same arguments are being made about the farm right here, about people that want to rip us out of this farm, give away Judea and Samaria. If only Israel were to surrender the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, the world would definitely support us and defend us if they would dare attack 
Tabitha, could you bring up this, this map here? I know we're a little over time, but I think it's important. You know, there's two maps here. The map on the left is the current, uh, no, the map on the right, I'm sorry, is the current warning time for a missile launch. The dark red is immediate, no warning. The red is 15 seconds. Uh, that's what the Shabbat visitors, we had this here, we, we had the Shabbat. That's what they live under, even though they said it was not 15 seconds. They said they get four to five seconds. The orange, 30 seconds. And this is all being very generous. The yellow, 45 seconds and so on. And so without Judea and Samaria, the map on the left, that's what it would look like. Simply indefensible. It would be a matter of seconds before the entire country would be obliterated by these missiles that would rain in on it in huge, huge numbers that the Iron Dome couldn't even get. But an argument can be made, you know, that we still have not learned to place our fear in Hashem. We still place our fear on some level in flesh and blood instead of our unwavering rock, instead of Hashem who has never violated his word, whose promises never return empty. This fear that we harbor in our hearts, this fear of man, this fear of how the world would respond if we reacted as we know that we should, this causes us to create and put our faith in other idols. And there's idols upon idols. And when you start to put your faith in the work of your own hands, it tends to build up upon itself more and more. And so what am I referring to now? This is one example. I'm referring to the Kipat Barzal, the Iron Dome. This very impressive piece of technological prowess that shoots these terrorist missiles out of the sky with what is still a very impressive accuracy. And listen, don't get me wrong. The Iron Dome is not in and of itself a bad thing, obviously. I mean, you probably have never even heard it referred to as a bad thing, but I'm starting to resent it a lot. You know, yes, it has the potential to save lives and defend Israel during initial onslaughts, but I've come to believe strongly that the way we are using it is ultimately not helping us, but it's hurting us because due to its accuracy and its effectiveness, we've started putting our faith in the system itself and using the whole thing to simply shift the line of what we're willing to tolerate in order to facilitate maintaining this idol in our heart of fearing men. So my friend Shmuel Sackett, he recommended it like this. I thought this before, but he just articulated so well. He said the Iron Dome missile defense system should be replaced by the Iron Fist missile defense system. And the Iron Fist system, he says, on the first day of the war, right, the first missile that is launched, it automatically fires back 100 rockets for every single rocket fired at Israel. And on the second day, fires back 200 missiles for each fired at Israel. And the third day, 300 and so on, although I doubt it would make it past day one. That would be the end of the missile attacks on Israel. And so Shmuel, he explains, he says, the Iron Fist takes the game to their field, not ours. It puts the pressure and the stress on them as we hit back a hundred times for every punch they throw at us. It's a system built much more on offense than on defense. And that's the only language the players in the Middle East understand. And he's right. When the West comes in here and starts preaching and talking about pieces of paper that we should sign and land that we should give up, they have no idea what, what they're talking about, what this is really is all about. You know, but doing that may mean that the world condemns us. And it doesn't matter how obvious and blatant the double standards and hypocrisy is, they will continue condemning us. As long as we care, as long as we care, that is, the moment we stop caring about their condemnations, the moment we care so much about what Hashem thinks, that we don't have any room left to care what they think, the moment we stop constantly defending ourselves and making all the arguments, 
I really believe that the attacks will stop coming because they won't matter. They've accomplished their mission. Anyways, countries don't have friends and they, they have interests and it's in everybody's interest to align themselves with those who have courage and strength. And there's no greater strength than the strength of the God of Israel. And when we put our faith in him, we will not falter. That's why I think there will be such peace in the whole world because God will so strongly identify with us and his strength will be in us that everybody will want to be on our side. And then everybody will be on the same side. You know, when we put our faith in, in man, we will continue to suffer the pain and the weakness and the fear and all the punishments that, we, that, that were so clearly articulated in this week's Torah portion. I wanted to go into them now. I wasn't expecting to go this far over time. So you can read the portion to see what I'm talking about. But if we treat Hashem, like Tehillah said, with casualness, then we will be treated with the same casual disregard. And regarding, you know, and, and, and reading these punishments from this week's Torah portion are like reading the most historic, horrific highlights from the history of the Jewish people with, you know, just uncanny and undeniable accuracy. And if there's one thing that our history teaches us, it's that when we place our faith in these idols, in the idols of the day, in these foreign strange forces that our fathers never knew, if we put our faith in the work of our own hands, it may work for the short term, but long term, it will always fail. Long term, we will see more headlines like this one that I just saw yesterday after this direct attack on Rishon Lezion. Do you see this, uh, this headline here? Okay. It says the Iron Dome malfunctioned. Iron Dome malfunctioning allowed a direct hit. And it happened a bunch of times. There were a bunch of malfunctions. This was the only one that was fatal, thank God, because Hashem is protecting us. And again, I'm not against using the Iron Dome in a healthy way as a first line of initial defense. But when we continue putting our faith in the Iron Dome and using it to facilitate our fear of what the world will say, if we continue relating to it as an idol, we will see more failures, more malfunctions, and more death. Because despite it all, you know, despite, despite all the failings and the stumblings and the idolatry, we can't lose hope. Despite falling on our faces a thousand times, this week's Torah portion, which tells us the horror will suffer, also tells us the reason that we have for hope. This week's Torah portion, it had to be here. The same portion that describes the pain and the anguish. Hashem says, no, don't believe what they tell you. I still love you. You are still my people. Chapter 26, verses 44 and 45. Yet in spite of this, when they're in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away. I will for their sake remember the covenant of their ancestors, who I have brought forth out of Egypt in the sight of the heathen, that I may be their God. I am the Lord. Hashem says he's still with us. He's going to bring us back. Yechezkel, Ezekiel, the, the prophet, he strengthens this with even more detail about what it will look like in the end of days, the days that we're approaching right now. Yet say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you in from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel, and they shall return there and do away with all its detestable things and all its abominations. I will give them one heart and put a new spirit in them. I'll remove the heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh that they may follow my laws and faithfully observe my rules. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. That's chapter 11 in, in Yechezkel and Ezekiel. You know, we may not know how we're going to get there or when, but we know it will happen. And if you ask this simple farmer, 
Judean Jew, it's not only going to happen soon, it's happening right now. We just need to have the eyes to see it. And from my vantage point in Judea, I can't see anything but the fulfillment of this prophecy. Everywhere I look, I see it coming into fruition right before my eyes. And if you want to know what I'm talking about, you're just going to need to have to come, you're going to have to come here and experience it for yourself. You know, when in the land of Judea, you can't help, but to have it even for a moment, Judean eyes, redemption eyes. And that's exactly what we are also doing here in this fellowship. We're bringing Judea to the world. We're holding each other up and working together to develop redemption eyes. The eyes to see that redemption, Ge'ulah, is unfolding right now. Not only, in, not only in front of us, but through us. Each of us in our own way. If for no other reason than just by virtue of the fact that from a place of humility and truth, we are turning our eyes to Hashem and we're saying, Hineni, here I am, Hashem, use me in whatever way you see fit, but please use me. I know all of you are saying that because I know you and I know that's in our hearts. And that's why we're all a part of this together. And so my friends, I want to bless us that we should always be hearing Hashem's voice through the events of our lives, on personal levels, on national levels, that our hearts should be open to receiving his guidance, leading us to grow in exactly the way that he wants us to grow. Not necessarily the way that we want to grow or think we should grow or the way that we think we're weak. No, we can tell how he wants us to grow exactly by what is happening to us in the way that he uniquely understands our souls. He understands the way our souls need to expand and evolve during our brief time here on earth. And we should, I bless us that we should have open minds and open hearts to where he is leading us in that growth. And I bless us that we should have the strength to be grateful for those challenges and, and that pain. Grateful in the knowledge that it, it's exactly because of that pain and the challenges that are giving us the opportunity to utterly shatter and destroy every single idol that we have in our hearts that are standing between us and Hashem, that are barriers between us and Hashem, which Hashem is eagerly waiting for us on the other side of those idols, arms extended, just waiting to envelop us in his loving embrace. He just wants us to take that initiative and to break those idols that are separating us from him. So we should be blessed to be able to do that. And I want to bless you all with the blessing of Aaron, the high priest. Ya'er Adonai panave lecha v'yifuneka. Yisa Adonai panave lecha v'yisam lecha shalom. May Hashem bless you and protect you. May He shine His light and His countenance upon you. And may He give you peace. Amen. Love you, my friends. Shalom. Stay in touch. Reach out. I want to hear from all of you. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.